as a guy who was involved in formal education for better part of four decades, I noticed something that stretches across the spectrum of formal education, and that is that nobody likes a teacher's pet. My wife has a pet dog. And that dog has special favors in our house. She doesn't have to work for a living. She has people weights on her hand and foot. She doesn't even have to walk if she doesn't want to because that dog gets special treatment. And that's a pet. And the teacher's pet, by definition, seeks that kind of approval and that kind of life from the teacher. Many of you in our church are teachers in one way or another. And uh, I would say to you, be careful if you have that kid in your class who really goes over time to earn your attention because nobody likes a teacher's pet. That truth makes today's text seem just a little bit strange to me. Why would Jesus... In dealing with the disciples and especially with Simon Peter, why would he come to a point knowing that these guys called his disciples have a problem with wanting to be above each other? You remember the passage where they're walking along the road and they're arguing among themselves and Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And they don't want to tell him. You know why? Because the whole content of their conversation is which one of them is the greatest? In another place... After the passage we're going to look at today, those same disciples, two of them at least, come to Jesus and they give him that special kind of request that parents have grown to see for what it's worth. We want you to do for us whatever we ask, or what we ask in this case. And Jesus said, what is it that you want? And they said, grant it that we should be in the first and second place in your kingdom." That's another way, those two examples are another way of saying these guys wanted special favor from God. And so it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an intriguing thing for me the way Jesus goes about this institution of his church. If you have your Bibles, go with me in Matthew chapter 16. This is the fifth week now that we've been in this. And I want you to grab the final truth as we work through it. Now we've, I'll kind of at the end of this message, I'll review some of what we've seen and see how it all folds together. Jesus, in the process of doing this, instituting his church at Caesarea Philippi, comes to the end of the discussion in verse 19 especially. We'll get to that in just a second. But uh, why would he single out Simon Peter when he knows he's got a, a whole disciple group there that would love to be the one singled out? As I read this, I want you to listen from the vantage point of the other disciples. Put yourself in that little setting there at Caesarea Philippi, and we've talked through that, and so I'm not going to go rebuild all of that today, but put yourself in that crowd. But I don't want you to put yourself in Simon Peter's place. I want you to be in James's place or John or maybe Simon the Zealot. I want you to listen to this from the vantage point of the one who is not being singled out. And so in verse 13 it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And it's at this point, now I'm not reading anymore, I'm just talking. But it's at this point that I suspect that they fell silent. Uh, we've, we've seen, in, of course, we were in Luke's gospel working up. We see in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel and even in Matthew's gospel this, this progression of these people who are attached to Jesus in some way or another as they continue to ask the question, who is this guy? And so when Jesus nails them down and says, but who do you say that I am? I have to believe that it got silent for a while. And finally, Simon Peter, the one who just couldn't stand silence, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, congratulations, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And now we come to today's text, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And as I came to that and I wanted to pull it apart, what I wanted the you there, that personal pronoun, I wanted it to be plural. So instead of Jesus saying to Simon Peter as an individual, I wanted him to be saying to the whole group, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus doesn't do that. It is a singular pronoun. Simon Peter, to you I give these keys. It's an intriguing thing for me, given their humanity so much like us, because as it turns out, many of Jesus' people just really do want to be the pet. They really want to rise to the place of authority in the church of Jesus Christ, and they want to be number one. As a matter of fact, one of the things that accompanies a pastor's life is regularly dealing with those people who intend to be number one in the church. Jealousy is a community killer in God's church. And yet in the church, jealousy seems to find a friendly environment for growth too often. We hear this in church all the time. Usually it's couched in terms like, well, they said, or well, they're doing, or well, what they want, and it always seems to be couched with that undercurrent that says, it's us against them, or better said, it's them against me. We hear that jealousy speak all the time in churches. One of the places pastors hear it most often is when one ministry begins to compete with another ministry in the church for resources. Or when one group decides that they will rise and be the ones for that church. We're going to focus in verse 19 today, as I've already said. I believe that it is with good cause that Jesus singles out Simon Peter here. Maybe we could even say, and I want to be very careful about this, but maybe we could even say that Jesus really would prefer to be able to talk to all of them the way he's talking to Simon Peter. But the reality of it is that Simon Peter is the only one who gives the answer that allows Jesus to pull him into this kingdom work foundation upon which the church is built 
is Jesus himself. And the confession that Simon Peter makes at this point is the one that Jesus says, I will build my church on this. And so far, Simon Peter's the only one who seems to get that. And so Jesus starts there. And he starts small. But the end of that is an expanding kind of movement. I'll say it this way. What has started as a trickle has become now a thundering river. Teresa and I, when we got to go to Israel a few years ago, went to this place in Caesarea Philippi or somewhere in that general area where Jesus was, and we've talked at length about that now. But, but that's in the northern part of the land of Israel. And it's in that part, the high country of the land of Israel, where the Jordan River finds its source. And as the moisture and the precipitation from the northern part of the land of Israel around Caesarea Philippi and all that begins to channel its way down, it starts as a trickle. As a matter of fact, I told you last week about this cave called the Gates of Hades. And it's just a little waterfall right there. It's not one of those raging torrent kind of things. But before it gets down to the Sea of Galilee, that little bitty trickle of water becomes this massive movement of water. And it begins to dump into that basin that now is called the Sea of Galilee. And very deep waters by the time it gets captured there. But it keeps coming. And so it fills up the Sea of Galilee and then ultimately it goes over the other side down what is called the Jordan River that separates Jordan and Israel and even to what we call the West Bank as it makes its way ever south. What started as a trickle of water by the time it gets there historically has been a huge, powerful water movement. That's that's a great picture of the church for us, I think. The history of the church is such that it causes us to step back and take note. The reason it should do that is because we find ourselves as the latest generation in that movement. I suspect that those disciples at Caesarea Philippi, as they're gathered around there, just really a handful of men in the overall scheme of history, and there Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my church, and he begins to lay out for them Stuff that we are still unpacking as to what he means by that. I I rather suspect if those disciples could have looked beyond just the moment and seen the trail of people throughout history that would be called the church, it would have blown their minds about what Jesus was doing right there. This is a critical passage of Scripture for us as a church. If we're to know who we are, And if we're to understand the nature of the church, we have to come back to this watershed passage and see what Jesus is saying. And so we've done that now for four weeks, and today we finish that series. And in the process of doing that, I hope that we can take our place in this long line of people who recognize that this body of Christ is in fact an organism, not an organization. Well, actually, I I need to clarify that. Because we are an organization, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but the reality is this is the body of Christ. We are an organism. It is lively, it is alive, and it continues to expand. That helps us to understand that maybe we're not quite as significant sometimes as we like to play like we are. Jesus starts here. He starts small. 
from that discussion where Jesus institutes his church, this organism, we find that Jesus' community began to sprout and grow. That's the passage. Let's look at this verse again. I want to show you a couple of things in here that uh, some of them still are confounding scholars a little bit, and we'll talk about some of that. What, what, what is it that accounts for the growth that we find in this thing called the church? I mean, movements have been started all through history. Movements of people where somebody makes a comment, something like what Jesus makes here, and so a group of people gather around that idea for a while, but it dies off. What is it about what Jesus is doing here that we need to take note of? Look at the, the, the phrase that he gives to Simon Peter. Blessed are you, he says up in verse uh, 17. But in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the passage. Uh, this is the part where many people uh, kind of, they grab this and then they decide what it means. And so then we get all of these jokes about Simon Peter standing at the gates of heaven. And he's controlling access who gets into heaven. I start to say who gets in and out. Um, but our theology is better than that, right? Right? We got a few that were right down here. I'm not sure about the rest of us, okay? But realistically, that's not what, what this means. The keys of the kingdom of heaven is not really about the access, although it might involve some of that. It certainly is not about Simon Peter standing at the gate, holding a key, saying, and do you get in or not? Spell Constantinople and we'll see if you get in or not. That's not what this is. This key discussion that Jesus, or the word that Jesus uses here, is really not just about access. It is a term that those first century's disciples would have heard that carried with it this idea of authority that is accompanied by a calling. I'll say it this way. With revelation comes responsibility. Simon Peter, I think, is singled out here because he gets it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the one who was promised. You are the one who was sent. You are the one who brings life. He gets that right. And Jesus says, because you know that, now there's a responsibility that you carry with you. I give to you keys to the kingdom of heaven. That is the one, that calling not as a set of tools for him to use, but as a responsibility for him to bear with him throughout life. When I was in another church as pastor, we walked into church one day to discover that someone had broken into the church at night and stolen some things. I guess I could just use our church as an example of that because we found out this morning someone broke into one of our youth buildings out there and stole some stuff. And so when we called the police in that other place, the police came out and we're filing a report. And you know what the police officer asked me? Who has keys to this facility? That's a terrible question to ask a pastor of a church full of people who have keys, and we didn't know how many they, that were out. We didn't know who had duplicated their own keys. There was no way in the world we could say we have five keys out or 100 keys out or whatever. We didn't know. You know what he said to me? Good police officer said, if you don't know, how do you know this was a break-in? 
You see, the key part of this whole thing is significant for us. It is not just about letting people into heaven. There is an authority that comes with this and a responsibility that accompanies that authority. And it's not just a tool then, it's the responsibility that Jesus says, because you know who I am, now there's a responsibility that you carry. So let me ask you before I go any further, who do you say Jesus is? And the vast majority of of us in this room have already taken a public stand, whether by confession here or by baptism, we've taken a public stand to say, we believe that you are the Christ. So by extension, the responsibility that was given to Peter now is passed to you. What are you doing with the responsibility that is yours that comes with knowing who Jesus Christ is? And so we pick up the call. Simon Peter here picks up the call that Jesus will give. And we, by extension of that, pick up the call that Jesus gives that says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you're not aware of it, let me give you just a little nudge into the direction of noticing that the people around you in this thing we call life are weary and heavy laden with life. It's taking its toll. It's killing them. And if you know who Jesus Christ is, you come alongside Simon Peter in what I believe is the intent of this passage. And Jesus says there is a responsibility now that you carry as one who carries my name. So Jesus entrusts his community and its calling to share life. One of the things that we find that's going to happen in just a handful of pages in this Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is going to go to the cross. As a matter of fact, the next passage, after what we're reading here, Jesus immediately begins to tell his disciples what's going to happen with him. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be killed. He begins to prepare them for what's coming. So Jesus, in this moment, starts his church. He institutes it based on who he is and their confession of that. And as he goes forward now, he begins to communicate to them, I'm going to leave, and when I leave, I'm going to pass this whole project on to you. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And into their care, now this fledgling church will be handed what they do with it. How they handle the truth of what's going on here will determine whether this church, this whole program of God we call salvation history will land squarely in their lap. What happens to it depends on how they handle it. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so he gives them a clue. Since it's such an important part of the whole move of God here, he gives them a a clue. Here's one of the things where our language now begins to let us down just a little bit. The way that verse reads in my translation, English Standard Version says, I will give you the keys. Now when we hear that, we often think of a transfer of ownership. Teresa and I hadn't been married very long when my grandmother got to a point where she couldn't really drive safely anymore. Well, reality is she had been long been at a point where she couldn't drive safely. Uh, But finally, my parents helped her understand that it was not in her or anybody else's 
uh, best interest to be driving around. And so she reached a point where she couldn't drive anymore. And because we were the poor, the poor preacher boy and his little family going off to college, uh, my grandmother gave us her car. Now, you just got to understand, okay? Those of you who are college students, you, you get this. A grandparent car is just not cool. Right? You can't dress it up enough. You can't jack it up high enough. You can't put nice wheels on it enough. You just can't make it cool. But it sure was functional. And so we drove it around. But what I want you to get from that is she gave me that car. There was a transfer of ownership that occurred when she did that. I'm giving you my car. I had to go down to the uh, Department of Public Safety, and I had to do a transfer of ownership thing. That car became my car. Now, our problem, one of the reasons we have so much conflict in church is because people, Christian people, many of, much of the time, and maybe most of the people... Uh, I want to I be gracious. Okay? I don't want to be condemnatory or anything like that. Most Christian people don't do this on purpose. I think it's just kind of sliding into it. I'll get to that in just a second. In other words, I don't think they on purpose say, okay, I'm going to take over now. But that's kind of the way we often approach positions of leadership in the church. It is mine. Jesus says, I'll give you Keys to the kingdom of God. If all he's talking about is I'm going to give you access to this thing called the church, we take give as if it's a transfer of ownership, which is ludicrous when you come to Scripture like this. The word doesn't mean to give as in to transfer ownership. It means to entrust. It's one of those moves that Jesus makes. He's just got through saying, I'm instituting this. It is my church. I will protect it. And then he turns to Peter now and he says, and I'm going to entrust it to you because I'm leaving soon. Before I came here, I was approached by some of the people in the Baptist General Convention of Texas, asked me to be a trustee for one of the institutions that Baptist in the state of Texas owns. When they asked me to do that, they were not saying, we're going to sign this institution over to you and it will be yours. Lord, help me if that would have been true. They said, and they were very careful to say, we want you to help run this in our interest. It is our institution but we trust you to help us do it well. That's the picture of this word. Jesus says, I will give to you, I entrust to you this organism that I'm instituting here. You see what that does for us? Now I'm going to go all the way back to where I started today. That truth in and of itself keeps us from getting ownership-oriented about it. And if it's not my church, then I don't have to fight you about control of it. I know, I know that that's uh, it's a little challenging for some church people. If you happen to be a leader in this church, recognize it's not yours, it's his. We've talked about that in here. But he hands it to you as a trust to say, do well with my body. It's an organism. 
And it's a trust to us. I like to say it this way. I've said it even from this pulpit, I think, that when you called me to be your pastor, one of the things that you got with me was a recognition that I was handed a church from a previous pastor, actually, in this case, a string of previous pastors, who said, we have been faithful in this time with God's people. You do the same. And so I also know that there's a group coming after me. Now, some of you may hope that that's soon. (laughs) But the reality is either Christ will come again and we won't need another pastor here or I'm going to die. Or God might call me somewhere else, but I'm here until he either calls me somewhere else or I die here. But the reality is there's going to be, if the Lord tarries, there's going to be another pastor coming after me. And he and the ones who come after him are going to look backwards at us during this time. And they're going to ask the question, what were you thinking when you did those things? Or they will say, thank you for being faithful with the trust. We are a bridge between generations in this church. And we do well to remember that it is his, not ours. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And then we get to what is a little more problematic for scholars. Another phrase, clause in this passage. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. How do you think Jesus' disciples would have heard those words? Here's how it works for me, okay? And I suspect that they were human enough to be human like I am so that maybe there's some crossover. A lot of the times I come to these kind of passages of Scripture, and the only thing I really can do is to just kind of get away from it a little bit and just kind of roll it over in my head and just kind of mentally chew on it, pray through it and say, okay, Lord, I, I don't know that I totally get that. Help me to understand. So I kind of suspect that maybe the disciples uh, took all of this in because we've, we've spent five weeks unpacking this passage. They got it all in probably about 15 seconds. So my suspicion is that they come away from that and some of those nights when they're laying out there looking up at the stars, they're, they're chewing on some of the things that Jesus said. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And they process through that. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What in the world does that mean? I can't help but believe those disciples laying there had discussions about that kind of stuff. What do you think Jesus meant with that? One of the things that they probably would have come to, and maybe immediately even, was this binding and loosing that Jesus talks about here is actually borrowed from the rabbis of the Judaism and the teaching of Judaism during that time. And it has to do with the authority and the, the way uh, uh, the rabbis were involved in people understanding and carrying out the law, what, we, what they would call the Torah. And so a rabbi had the ability to bind, to hold down this truth, this is what it means, or to loose, to open it up for them so that the application of those kind of things would have been better, easier, easier for them to understand. So the binding and the loosing that Jesus refers to in their minds would have gone straight into their Judaistic upbringing. But you see, that's the amazing thing about this. 
what has been reserved for the rabbis, for the scribes and the Pharisees and those professional religionists of his day, Jesus now turns and he opens it up to these guys. Don't forget, these guys are fishermen and tax collectors. They're just normal people. What the professional religionists were doing now, Jesus says, you get to do that. No, it's not you get to do that. It is you must do that. What we find then, I think, the best way for me to pull all of this together for us, I think, is to recognize Jesus at this point, that's this little trickle of truth. I'm instituting my church, but the further downstream you go, the more decisions have to be made. How do we do this, church? So on the front end of it, Jesus gives them clues and he gives them directions. Here's what has to be done. And you guys, the ones that I have chosen to be my followers in this thing we call discipleship, Jesus says for you, you are going to have to make decisions as to how this organism is organized. And we find that all through the New Testament. We find it in the book of Acts when there is a discussion about who should be allowed into this thing called the church. We have a Jerusalem council, and they begin to have to make decisions. And so they have to sift through these real-life implications of what it means to be the people of God. We have an entire New Testament that's full of teachings that come from those first couple of decades after this where they have to flesh out Organism, organism and life in it. By, by nature, an organism, now let me re-say that. By nature, an organization needs structure. They need to be able to handle the growth and the people that come with it. I've said to many of you, one of the concerns that I had coming in here was that I did so much structural work the first year and a half of the time that I was here that I was afraid that all of you were going to start thinking, well, this guy, all he does is organization stuff and structure building, and when that's done, then what's he going to do? (laughs) Well, you're still wondering what I do. But there's so much that has to happen. If we're... To be ready to grow, if God, I need to really be careful and make sure you know my heart. I don't believe, I've said this several times this weekend, I don't believe that God called me here so that we could build a huge church. Now, God may choose to build a huge church here, but I believe that God called me here to help build the kingdom and to build disciples. I was hoping I'd get a little better, okay, but that's what I'm about, okay? That's what I'm about. And I think biblically that's what I'm supposed to be about. But the reality is we're part of this, what started as a trickle and now is this raging torrent moving through history where God reaches out to people through his church and says, all may come and enter in. That's what we're about. But if we're going to do that, we have to be able to handle people well. And so this organism that's always growing has to be organized. Somebody gave me a hard time this week because I made up my own word in the title of this sermon. Organizationalism. You look in the dictionary, it's probably not there. Let me just, let me, let me defend myself. It takes a genius to create a word. Well, actually, that's not really true. Okay? 
You look in a dictionary and I'll guarantee you somebody dreamed up every one of those words in that dictionary. Somebody did. So you just have to be willing to step outside of your comfort zone and make up a word. The Apostle Paul did that all through the New Testament. The organism that is the church has that comes with it the need for us to be organizationally sound. And I believe that it is this verse that Jesus uses to free those disciples to make it work. Who are we, really? The nature of the church involves the expansion of the kingdom. And that in itself means that we must, hear me very carefully now, we must pay attention to detail. We must handle people well. And in the process of that, we have to reflect well on the foundation who is Jesus Christ. And in the process, we have to run it well. But there's a pitfall we have to be careful about. When we reduce the organism to an organization, hear the way I said that. When we reduce the organism to an organization, we stop the flow of life. Don't miss that. So many churches do the organization well, and in the process of that, it's full of death. Don't get it wrong. You know, one of the differences between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is that there is no outlet to the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee collects all of that water that comes from the highlands of Israel, and it's deep, and it's not all that wide, but it is awfully deep, and it provides water for the whole of the land of Israel. And on the southern end of that, that water dumps out into the Jordan River, and it flows down, and it gets to the Dead Sea, and there is no exit So it evaporates and it leaves behind these deposits, mineral deposits. And that's why it's called the Dead Sea. It's because it's just dead because there's no flow of life through it. That is a metaphor of the church of the 21st century in America, I'm afraid. Oh, we love to hear good sermons. We love to have good Bible study and we love to have our fellowships and we love those times that we come together and we feel good about being together, but there's no outlet, which means there's no life left. We wonder why the world around us is going to hell in a handbasket. They don't need what we have. Or so they think. Jesus would not entrust this organism to us if he did not intend to help us with it. So we come to the verbs here. Those of you who are Greek scholars, this is a rare construction. Most of your Bibles will probably have a footnote here. It's in verse 19 again. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the key. Whatever you, not the key, key, but. You see, don't use a word that you've already explained in a different way. That's a good rule of thumb. All right, so here, here's a very important thing for us. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If you look to see if your Bible has a footnote there, what you may find is what mine says, which says, or shall have been bound in heaven and shall have been loosed in heaven. Same construction twice. 
Now, scholars kind of tell us, Greek scholars kind of tell us that, well, some say it doesn't really matter. You know, really kind of, you can take it either way. It means the same thing. I do not agree with that. First of all, the construction itself is rare enough that Matthew intends and Jesus originally intends for us to recognize this is not just a normal statement. The rarity of the construction is important here. The best translation I think of that is the one that's in the footnote, and it says, and every, how's he said? And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. See, here's the danger for us. If we take it, shall, if whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, that kind of makes us God of the church. And churches are full of humanistic Christianity that says, just dream it up and God will follow suit for you. You know what they call that? Garbage. That's what we should call that. Jesus gives us responsibility in the church. But it's his church. He came to redeem humanity. He doesn't need our input on how to make it happen. And yet, we will sit in committee meetings and never once invoke the name of God in the decisions that we make. How stupid of us to do that. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. The the construction there is an event that continues in the carrying out of it. In other words, in the administration, in the organization of the organism, our best move is to position ourselves to hear what Jesus wants us to do with his church. Let me get real specific at applying that. Simon Peter is a great example of how to get it wrong and how to get it right. (laughs) Immediately after this, this is the first time Simon Peter gets it wrong. This is the humanistic part. This is the part that says, okay, you gave me the keys. I got it from here. Here's what he says, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, what are you, nuts? That's not really what he said, but that's what he said. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That is humanistic Christianity. We will decide what is best. And Jesus refuses to play along with him or with us, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Wow. We go from, congratulations, Simon, you got it, So now you're the devil in the flesh and get out of my face. You know what's the difference? Simon Peter decided that he knew best. He gets it wrong. Remember the time when Simon Peter's walking on water? Well, Jesus is the one walking on water and Simon says, I want to try that. I always wanted to try that. Let me try that. Jesus says, come on. Simon gets out of the boat, starts walking, and you know as well as I do, Simon Peter looked back at his buddies and went, ah, look. Boom. 
humanistic Christianity. I don't need Jesus. I just do it. I got it. I'm God's best gift to his church in our day. Church is full of those people. How about the ear slicing incident? Incident. You know, Jesus is about to get arrested. Simon Peter whips out his dagger and cuts off an ear. I don't believe he was aiming for the ear, just to be honest with you. What did Jesus do? You got to believe in the, in the heat of the moment of what Jesus was going through that he looked at Simon Peter and just shook his head and went, dude, really? Simon Peter had a penchant for getting it wrong. Maybe most notably gathered around that fire. I tell you, I don't know who that guy is. But fortunately, Simon Peter also gets it right a few times. This passage is one of them. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus' response to him was, you didn't come up with that on your own. Only God could teach you that truth. And he gets it right. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, all this stuff's going on, and Simon Peter stands up and says, I'm telling you, they're not drunk. I know it sounds like they're drunk. They're not drunk. This is a God thing. Acts chapter 4. Simon Peter arrested for getting it right. Verse 8 and following, it says, In that, and filled with the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter began to take it to him, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, when we get it right and we position ourselves to hear from God and from Jesus himself about his organism called the church, we have the ability to make organizational choices that are beyond us. That's what we need. We need to be a church marked by decisions that come from heaven rather than the hearts of men. Let me just pull it right down on the bottom shelf and I'll be done. We have two search committees currently that are looking for staff members. Can I, with all the Christian love I can muster, tell you, I don't care what you think we ought to do. We need to know what God wants us to do. How many thousands of lives are going to be affected by the two staff members that we call next? We don't have time for what you think. This afternoon, we're going to have committee meetings, our monthly committee meetings. If we had some kind of device like they have at the airports, I'm going to fly to Oklahoma City this week and I'm going to go through one of those devices where they're going to make sure I'm not carrying a gun or anything like that. If we had a, one of those devices in the fellowship hall that we could set up to determine whether somebody's spiritually active when they walk in the door or not, would you get in? But yet we're going to go in there, we're going to make decisions about the life of this church over the coming weeks. Deacons meetings to Let's forget that one. <clears throat> Deacons meet us tomorrow night. Guys, how's your spiritual life? The only way we get this right is by remaining in position to take directives from him. So where are you today? Let's pray. Tough stuff, Lord. We, we know 
that your kingdom deserves more than our best. And so as best we know how, we say thank you for allowing us to have a piece of the work here. But we also, we ask you to help us get it right. We are so high on ourselves that we rarely think to ask you what to do. So help us get it right.